The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. These are your headlines. President Biden warns of a strong response if Russia uses weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine as the U.S. announces fresh sanctions on Moscow and new humanitarian aid for Kiev in a series of key meetings in Brussels. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite of what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. China's lukewarm support for measures against Russia looms large over the G7, EU and NATO meetings. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, of NATO that is, tells CNBC Beijing must fully join the global response. Our message to China is that they should join the rest of the world uh, and clearly condemn uh, the brutal war uh, against uh, Ukraine uh, and not support uh, uh, Russia. The U.S. pledges to supply Europe with LNG gas by the end of the year to help reduce the bloc's reliance on Russia. As German Chancellor Olaf Scholz tells CNBC, a better energy mix is key to his long-term strategy. The truth is Germany is already working on diversifying the supply for the time we live in. This is an already existing strategy which becomes now more velocity and which we will work on. In an exclusive interview with CNBC, the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire says the war in Ukraine has damaged globalization efforts as he rallies election support for President Macron. That's the end of the happy globalization, where everything is fine, everybody is happy, and uh, if you want to find uh, goods in China, in Taiwan, or in the US, uh, but not in Europe, that's not an issue. You just have to rely on the supply chain from China, from Taiwan, or from the US. Good morning, everyone. Very interesting to see that Bruno Le Maire aligned with Larry Fink as well. You should take a look at his latest letter in which he says the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end, put an end, not delayed it, not slowed it. He says it's put an end to three decades uh, of globalization. Very interesting and I'm sure a very big discussion point over the next uh, well, whatever period you like. OK, US President Joe Biden says NATO has never been more united as it continues to face aggression from Russia. Speaking after the alliance's summit in Brussels, Biden uh, urged cooperation between member states to help provide shelter to Ukrainian refugees. Mr. Biden also added that he wanted to see Russia removed from the G20 group of countries. Biden also said that NATO and its allies were ready to respond if Russia used chemical weapons in Ukraine, but did not specify how. It would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross, we'd make that decision at the time. The United States as a leader, one of the leaders in the international community, has an obligation to be engaged, to be engaged and do all we can to ease the suffering and pain of innocent women and children and men, for that matter, throughout, the, throughout Ukraine and those who have made it across the border. 
The Biden administration also announced new sanctions on Russian state-owned enterprises that produce weapons used in the war in Ukraine. The additional measures also target members of Russia's legislative body, the Duma, as well as Russian oligarchs, including the CEO of Spurbank, Herman Greff. President Biden also said he hoped China will not get involved in helping Russia evade sanctions or violate existing export bans. I think that um, uh, China understands that uh, its economic future is much more closely tied to the West uh, than it is to Russia. And so uh, I, uh, I, I'm hopeful that he, uh, he does not get engaged. We also did discuss today that there's a need for us to set up NATO to set up and, and the EU to set up a system whereby we have an organization looking at who has violated any of the sanctions and where and when and how they violated them. And that's something we're going to put in train. Right, let's get to Hadley who joins uh, in Brussels. Hadley, you've been speaking to a lot of the absolutely key players here, but can I start off on this absolutely key point, which goes back, as you know as well as I do, uh, nine, ten years. And ten years ago, uh, Mr. Obama, uh, the president, uh, of course, an administration that Joe Biden was part of, said there was a red line over the use of chemical weapons in Syria, uh, a red line that was then crossed by Bashar al-Assad as well with a very... Uh, unimpressive U.S. response in many ways. This time round, I think the language from Joe Biden is more nuanced about the reaction that will come from the West uh, if indeed there are the use of chemical weapons. Why don't you just talk us through this? Absolutely, uh, Steve. And frankly, uh, I think that it's a more nuanced response because they learned the first time around not to draw red lines if you don't plan on seeing them through. And that's exactly what happened uh, with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. I was in that room when John Kerry said chemical weapons would be a red line that uh, were he to cross it, there would be a direct response from the Obama administration. And of course, there wasn't. He was undercut by the president just a couple of hours later. At the end of the day, though, you've got to understand that uh, the West can talk all it likes about a unified response. But a real unified response would see boots on the ground in Ukraine, would see um, planes flying overhead to make sure there was a no-fly zone. It would see real sanctions, energy sanctions on Russia's president. And of course, that hasn't happened because there is no unified response when it comes to the energy dynamics of all of this, because the Europeans, as we all very well know, are dependent on Russian energy to varying degrees, depending on which country you're talking about, Germany versus France uh, versus the rest of them. One of the big questions that we uh, heard posed again and again was about how they understand that there could be a potential um, threat against Ukraine when it comes to chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. This question was asked to the NATO Secretary General and various other uh, leaders uh, in my presence over and over again yesterday, and they just were very, very short on detail. We didn't get any uh, more information in terms of the intelligence that they have gathered. And this is an administration, of course, who has been um, pretty free in sharing intelligence over the last month or so with regards to the invasion. But they did say again and again that this is a real threat, that they're going to try uh, and buffer Ukraine's defenses against any such attack. One of the big questions as well, China. How are they going to keep Beijing from enabling Russia, either financially or with military aid? Listen in to what Jen Stoltenberg had to tell me when I asked him that question, as well as whether or not we're going to see more sanctions on Russia's energy sector. NATO allies are coordinating their efforts when it comes to also uh, energy security. And it was also addressed in a meeting uh, today. Uh, to uh, step up supplies, to diversify uh, uh, sources of supply, and uh, and also, also to reduce dependence on supplies from from uh, Russia. 
uh, and uh, and uh, later on today I also participate in the G7 meeting and of course in different frameworks G7 working with the EU uh, uh, there are different formats where NATO allies address the need uh, to strengthen energy security and reduce dependence on on uh, on on Russian oil and uh, and gas. Uh, our message to China is that they should join the rest of the world uh, and clearly condemn uh, the brutal war uh, against uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and not support uh, uh, Russia, uh, neither uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, economic support or, of course, not with military support. NATO Secretary General there essentially I'm giving again a nuanced response frankly on China and the energy markets because those of us who follow energy understand you cannot have a conversation about geopolitics without factoring in what the energy dynamic is really going to mean not just for the West but also for China. Now I asked uh, French President Emmanuel Macron basically the same question but I followed on by asking him about Total Energies who are still operating in Russia what his message is to that company and whether or not they should stop working in Russia. Listen in to what he had to say to me. China, as a member of the UN Security Council and as a major power, has no choice but to be a power that is going to bring about moderation or mediation. And so it will help us in terms of getting Russia to stop doing this war. It is in its interest to uh, see to it that uh, nuclear powers all of them return to reason and uh, visibility. I know that that's something which is important for Russia, for China in the context of international relations. So I'll continue to talk to President Xi Jinping in this spirit. I want to believe that China will be consistent in terms of its vision and its understanding of territorial sovereignty. So it will try to put an end to the war. And it is my belief that China will not contribute to any form of escalation. That was the French president there, of course, uh, essentially saying to me that he's optimistic that they can find some kind of um, move forward with Beijing because as a superpower, they have a responsibility um, to keep the world order in check. And part of that, of course, is, in his view, um, a tighter rein, frankly, on Vladimir Putin. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, when I asked him about Total Energies, as you heard there, crickets, no response to that whatsoever. We always talk about the confluence of energy markets and geopolitics. One of the questions that we'll be asking later today of Ursula von der Leyen in an exclusive interview with the head of the EU Commission is whether or not we're going to see more energy sanctions on Russia and what kind of plan she has come up with, the U.S. president, to support LNG supplies to Europe. Guys. Hadley, I'll pick it up. It is fascinating, isn't it? The French approach uh, from Total to Renault right on the eve of an election. And just wonder whether that pressure is ratcheted up on Macron as we count down to polling day in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's push on as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has marked one month since Russia's invasion of Ukraine by praising the efforts of the people of his country. In a short video for leaders in Brussels, he hailed the Ukrainian people's strength in holding back Russian troops across the front line. The 30th day. If Russia knew what was waiting for it here, I'm sure it would have been afraid to come. During this month, we have held back all main directions of Russian attacks. The world has applied destructive sanctions and we are discussing applying more. The US and EU have reportedly struck a deal to help the bloc replace Russian gas. 
in an agreement which would see America supply the EU with up to 15 billion additional cubic metres of LNG by the end of the year. President Biden and European Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen are expected to announce further details later this morning before Biden heads to Poland to meet President Duda. Let's get out to Sylvia for more. She joins us from Brussels. Uh, Sylvia, the EU had a declaration they wanted to find this extra 50 billion cubic metres by the end of the year of LNG gas supply. How close are they potentially getting if this deal is declared today? So indeed, we are expecting both the President of the United States and the President of the European Commission to announce later this morning, indeed, a new deal that will lead to more liquefied natural gas from uh, the United States into Europe. And the reason behind that is because clearly there is an effort from the European Union to reduce the, the, the dependency that they have from Russian energy going forward. And they want to do that quickly, but of course, they will need more support from the United States and other countries, given even that doing so will be very complicated. But it has been a very eventful trip from the President of the United States to Brussels. He was not just at the NATO summit yesterday, there was also the gathering of the G7. But then later on, he was also joined by the 27 leaders of the European Union in uh, the European summit. He joined that meeting for an hour and a half. And indeed, the idea of that presence was to show to Russia, but also to China, that the West, that the United States and the European Union are united. And it's very important to look at the Chinese angle here as well, because the U.S., for instance, has, had, has said in the past that Russia has asked China both for military and financial help, something that both the Kremlin and Beijing have denied. But nonetheless, there is that concern about what future role China might play within this context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I pose that question to different European leaders here in Brussels. Here's what the Latvian prime minister had to say about indeed China's role in this regard. China has a choice. It's a rather simple choice. Uh, put in your lot with uh, Russia that is waging a war against Ukraine, bombing uh, women, children, uh, hospitals, uh, or uh, find a way uh, to work with Europe, with the US and with uh, Western democracies. I think it's a rather simple choice, but of course it's a choice that uh, China has to make. There is a EU-China summit coming up, and this will be the key topic, of course. If China helps Russia, then the sanctions won't work as we want them to work. So, of course, China is a major player, and we have to make sure that China is on the right side of history with this war. You also heard there the Finnish uh, prime minister making it very clear as well that uh, China needs to be on the right side of history. Now, I also posed this same question to the prime minister of Italy, Mario Draghi, and he said that China has a crucial role in the peace process. To the Chinese authority, my message is China is a most important country. They can be crucial in the peace process. They have lots of leverage, a lot of leverage. And so we are all waiting that they use it. So let's see indeed what message the Chinese authorities will give us going forward. It's important to bear in mind that this will also have a, a, an influence on the upcoming European and Chinese summit taking place late next week. It will be very important to see what sort of message both the EU and China will say next week in terms of what's going on in Ukraine.
Thank you very much indeed. Excellent work there from both of our correspondents in Brussels. Right, coming up on the show, the Bank of Japan governor. Very interesting, Mr. Kuroda, talking down the yen. Or he's certainly not talking it up. I I think it's perhaps more accurate. uh, Saying that the benefits that the Japanese economy is achieving on this, uh, well, tumultuous decline of the yen uh, are, are tantamount. So very interesting debate going on about the yen. We'll maybe discuss after a short break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. U.S. equities continued their march higher yesterday with uh, all three major indices on Wall Street closing the day in positive territory. The tech-heavy Nasdaq gaining about 1.9%. The best-performing sector yesterday was technology. That basket of stocks was up about 2.7% within the S&P 500 index, which overall gained about 1.4%. On the flip side, energy was the laggard, gaining about 0.1%, but still a a positive mover as well. And then the Dow Jones ended about 350 points higher. For the week now, the Nasdaq is up more than 2%. The S&P 500 up about 1.3%, both on track for the second positive week in a row. Now, as for U.S. futures, will this positive momentum continue today as all eyes remain on Brussels with more meetings in store, energy of particular focus today. We are looking at a positive start for U.S. equities. All three majors looking at modest gains at this stage. The Dow Jones looking at about a 70-point gain at the open, the Nasdaq about 25, and the S&P 500 about 8 points. Karen. Juliana, let's talk about some of the data as weekly initial jobless claims in the United States have fallen to the lowest level since 1969. The Labor Department reports that Americans filed only 187,000 new claims last week. That was less than analysts had expected. Fed Chair Jerome Powell flagged earlier this week that the central bank could move quite, quote, more aggressively if needed, opening the door to a half a point interest rate hike at the next meeting. This after the Fed raised rates by a quarter point last week. We will continue the conversation later on today. Our colleagues across the Atlantic will bring you an exclusive interview with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. That's coming your way at 1300 CET, Juliana. Uh, as for European markets, uh, this is the picture according to opening calls right now. Not a huge amount of movement. As I said, investors continue to watch very, very closely um, what's happening in Brussels with a meeting expected between Ursula von der Leyen and President Biden later this morning with energy a key focus. So perhaps uh, investors are in a little bit of a wait and see mode at this stage. We've got a single digit moves in store for the DAX, uh, about 21 points higher indicated right now for the Italian market, unchanged for the French market. And the FTSE 100 looking at a very modest pullback at the open. Asian markets, uh, similar picture for the overnight um, trade uh, in mainland China. The Shanghai Composite down about eight-tenths of a percent, so fairly contained losses. The Hang Seng over in Hong Kong down about 2.2 percent. The Nikkei 225 over in Japan up about 0.14 percent in Japan. Uh, Inflation and the yen firmly in focus this morning. Steve. Yeah, um, if I said to you that core inflation in Tokyo has hit a more than a two-year high, you'd probably think that that's been uh, reacted on the foreign exchange markets with A, stability in the yen, or B, a rising yen. 
Um, meanwhile, the yen is uh, having its biggest declines we've seen in years, um, despite the fact that core inflation's hit more than a two-year high, rising 0.8% year on year. That is quicker than analysts had expected. The figure is stripped of fresh food, but does include energy costs, which have absolutely surged since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Including food, inflation climbed to 1.3%. The data for Japan's capital is considered a good indication of the nationwide figure released a month later. The Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda-san has, though, repeated his view that a weaker yen is good for the economy. The yen has recently fallen to multi-year lows, increasing costs for consumers and companies in the import-reliant country. But according to Kuroda, this is outweighed by bigger profits uh, for the Japanese exporters that they can earn overseas. He also said the rise in import prices is mostly due to global commodity inflation, uh, not the weak Yen. Well, that may well be the case at the moment, but actually this is turning into quite a rout on the yen as well. For instance, versus the Aussie dollar, it has lost 8% in the last eight sessions. That is a very, very swift and large decline as well. So what's it being used as? Well, a lot of people talking about the old carry trade being back in again and the fact that there is a huge distinct difference now between the policies of the Bank of Japan and Haruhiko Kuroda and the policies of a lot of the um, the pairs with which the yen is paired with and the pairs of those central banks. So the carry trade very much back as a funding currency uh, for the yen as well. Uh, and also, one thing that's very interesting, a lot of people look at the yen as a safe haven. Well, it certainly hasn't been a safe haven at all uh, during this last month and during this crisis. So gaps in um, uh, central bank policy, no safe haven, import bill going absolutely through the roof. Would you like to know the import bill increases? Energy prices are up. Um, the biggest gains we've seen in the last 41 years, latest energy price increases are up 26%. So very interesting what's going on there. I've been looking at what some of the analysts have been saying about this as well. Uh, and Albert Edwards over at Societe Generale uh, believes possibly, possibly uh, a dollar yen pair of 150 is possible. And I wonder if that would certainly change the tune of Harihiko Kuroda. It certainly would, by the way. Um, so what does Edward say? He says, as the yen declines, the trend becomes a self-perpetuating phenomenon known as the carry trade, where participants actively borrow in a depreciating yen to fund higher yielding investments elsewhere. So the carry trade perpetuation uh, on the back of this move we've seen potentially. I think on your, your point about it as, you know, acting as a safe haven, and of course it is a safe haven of choice in many periods of volatility, but in this current situation, when you're looking at the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, how the U.S. dollar compares to the yen as a safe haven if you're looking at uh, an interest rate environment that is getting um, more higher and higher in the U.S., clearly that makes it a more attractive spot um, for the dollar. Uh, the other piece here, the other currency trade that I, I've seen a lot written about is the yuan versus the yen and um, whether this major depreciation in the yen versus the yuan will trigger a devaluation from China. And it seems as though the consensus at this stage is that the situation is very different to what we've seen in years past in 2015, that it won't necessarily trigger a devaluation. But that is certainly a currency pair that I think is getting a lot of attention. Karen, I don't know if you want to come into the conversation um, and, and your thoughts, what you've been hearing about the yen right now. 
I think it's just a game of chicken that's being uh, played between the markets and the central bank. I mean, we've seen this much higher in yields globally, and we've seen it in uh, JGBs as well. And effectively, uh, the Bank of Japan was willing to intervene in the market only in, in uh, February as it saw this escalation. It was willing to, to embark upon unlimited purchases. But we're now around the same yield on the 10-year. And uh, the Bank of Japan is testing what we know about yield curve control. It's not effectively stepping in at this point, and the market's sort of second-guessing itself now stepping back and saying, well, what exactly is the plan here from the central bank? So I think there's somewhat of a, a mixed message being conveyed by the central bank, which is always interesting as we talk about two-way bets, because the, the bet you've seen on the yen has been a one-way bet in recent weeks, a one-way direction south and very rapid decline to the point where questions are now being asked in the marketplace as to whether there is any credibility around the trade. So I think that is fascinating, uh, given the uh, role that the yen has played in a global foreign exchange markets, that the credibility question of the has come up. But uh, I do think Kuroda-san is playing a very interesting game with the markets here. Let's just see what the Bank of Japan does in coming weeks, whether they do step in and buy some of those purchases, whether they do try and stop this tightening of monetary policy finding its way to Japanese shores when clearly the central bank still thinks that there needs to be uh, fairly widespread support for the economy. Um, but the policy is failing. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, I spoke to Kuroda-san many, many years ago in the last decade, uh, where he said by now that Japan should have sorted out its major debt problem. It should have sorted out uh, some of the issues related to its reliance on postal savings to finance this huge, huge debt to GDP. Uh, and now the markets are beginning to ask questions, questions about the yen, questions about the yield curve control. Let's not forget the JGB 10-year has a cap of 0.25. Well, we are decimals away from that as we speak. And if we can get the JGB 10 years up, Okay, right, not at the moment. Okay, thank you. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, with a debt to GDP of 252%, if the demographic issues start to really play as many people think they will in the second half of this decade, and if those postal savings are withdrawn at a greater rate, what does that mean for the borrowing costs uh, and indeed the levels of debt in the Japanese economy that they've relied on for so long? We'll leave that question hanging. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC. <laughs>